Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Uh, We're here to explore questions and to have conversations from a Christian perspective in a way that replaces theatrical anger with convictional kindness, and in a time of polarization and confusion, looks for signposts of Christ in our good but fallen world. Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham, seeks to lift up the sages and storytellers of the global church. If you're not a member yet, uh, click on the cover art for a trial membership that'll give you access to a lot of uh, resources. Uh, As some of you know, uh, several weeks ago, I put in my newsletter, when we launch the show, for the conversations, a part of it, who are people that you would like uh, for me to talk to? And several of you came in and said, well, we, we kind of want you to have your friends on, and we really want to hear, several people said, we really want to hear a conversation with David French. One of you said, I particularly want you to talk about David Frenchism." <laughs> So we will uh, we will do that today, and I'm joined by David French at the Dispatch, author of Divided We Fall, important book on uh, the sorts of craziness that we have going on around us and how to fix it. And so I just kind of wanted folks to to listen in on some of what we would talk about uh, at coffee or at lunch or, or something like that without a lot of censorship, maybe a little. <laughs> we won't talk about everything we talk about there, but most of the time. Uh, and so this person's asking about David French-ism. I know what that is. Yeah. But do you know what that is? What is it? Uh, well, you know, well, one thing I can say, being an ism isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> uh, but I would say that the short version of David Frenchism is the defense of the classical liberal uh, order of the American founding through respect, arguments mounted in respect and decency. That's the aspiration yeah. of David Frenchism. And that's actually the attack on David Frenchism, right. which is an attack on the classical liberal founding and an attack on the notion that in our present time, uh, that kindness or decency are even acceptable characteristics to demonstrate in public life. Why has that happened? I mean, you and I both experience this all the time. And uh, there, there's this sense of sometimes I think that some of the big, uh, the big controversies are not about the content of what's being debated, but whether somebody seems angry enough at the right, right people. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, especially on the right, there's what you I would call a temperamental political correctness, which is you can't be opposed to, it's, it's not enough to be opposed to something. You have to be opposed to it with the right, at the right volume and the right level of intensity and the right level of anger and animosity. And I think really the central story of our time politically, which is extending culturally, is one of animosity. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, A, that's just Twitter, uh, B, yeah. there's just all kinds of social science that tells us that uh, Republicans are tend to be Republicans not so much because they love Republican ideas, but because they hate or fear Democrats mm-hmm. and vice versa. And this is something called negative partisanship or negative polarization. And it is, it is the enemy of respect, kindness, decency, because if you're that angry— 
if you're that furious and if you've convinced yourself the stakes are that high, um, to use the words of the original against David Frenchism essay, then kindness or decency become quote unquote second order values. Yeah, or uh, an indication that you're not willing to fight. Yes, this is not. This is a surrender from fighting. Yes, and so this might be one of the few times where we've had a conversation where I've not made a drag queen story hour <laughs> joke. Well, we uh, made it five you. minutes. We made it five <laughs> minutes, but I didn't do it. Uh, but that's one of the one of the examples um, uh, that was brought forward is if you're not saying that everything bad ought to be illegal right. in every case. I mean, the, that's complex because it's dealing with a public institution and so right, forth. Right. But, but if you're not saying that everything bad ought to be illegal, then that means a refusal to fight. Right. Um, and, 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 and then it simply goes from, do you think this is good or bad, to, well, why won't you stop it? Yes, exactly. And, and none of these people are actually stopping any of this. No, stuff. they're not stopping it. They're tweeting aggressively about yes, it. So, yes. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm an old line civil libertarian in that I, I have spent my entire legal career while I was litigating, defending First Amendment rights. And I defended people I profoundly disagreed with. I defended the religious liberty of people I profoundly disagreed with, due process rights of people that um, I disagreed with. I believe that America's civil liberties apply to all of us equally. And so does that mean that there are times when I'm going to defend something that I think the content of the speech is reprehensible? Yes, I'm going to do that because all of us are equally entitled to, to enjoy the liberties protected in the Bill of Rights. And so you know, at this time, it's very hard for that commitment to civil liberties to survive this level of animosity yeah. because if you say, um, you know, I really loathe this other person or I really loathe this idea, then your mind starts working towards how can I creatively work to where I can preserve my free speech and I can deprive you of yours. Yeah, that's the issue is this sort of um, this inconsistency that should, I face this a lot with um, mosques. Right. So uh, obviously, I think that the uh, I think that what Islam teaches is not true. Right. But to say that mosques ought not to be outlawed or zoned out of existence, I could understand it. I would disagree, but I could understand it if someone said we need to have a king with power uh, over religion, establishing a church, and that's what we have. But instead, what you end up with are people who are saying we need absolute religious liberty and we need to outlaw all of these religions that we don't like. Right. Oh, yeah, this has been a big issue. And in fact, you see in some quarters of the far right, you'll see people try to argue that the First Amendment and the Free Exercise Clause was really designed for Judeo-Christian liberty and not for anyone else's, which, you know, one of the things you do when you're interpreting a law is you look at the text first mm -hmm. That's not there. I'm very sorry. That is just not right. there. And so if you're going to be a defender of religious liberty, um, and if you want to actually protect it, if you want religious liberty to be actually protected, you you need to defend everyone's religious freedom. Because once you break that firewall that says the government is going to be able to infringe upon some religions and not others, once you breach that firewall, you better pray you win all your elections. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things that's interesting to me is I would have people who would say often, uh, why are we talking about, and this was even just talking about religious liberty for Christians. Right. Why are we talking about this? That's defensive. Why don't we move on the offense? And I'm, I was starting to realize, wait a minute, what that actually betrays is you think what's really what really matters is what happens with the state, right? And not what is happening with the church, right. where religious liberty. What I'm saying is, leave us alone, yeah. so that the real power can come through, <laughs> and the real power is the preach word of God and the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, a hundred percent correct. I when I was a religious liberty attorney, I had all kinds of ministries that were clients, and for many of them. I had a little speech that I would give, and the speech would be something that goes a lot like this, that look, during this fight, um, we're gonna be focused a ton on freedom. And then, but caring with freedom is responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, I, I can, by God's grace, secure your liberty, but it's your responsible, responsibility to then use that liberty 
for the glory of the kingdom of God. I mean, and that and for the and for God's glory, that is the responsibility that comes along with liberty. And I think that what we often do in this country is we so, we so focus on the liberty, we don't focus on what the liberty grants us the ability to do, and that's what we should be doubling down on. That's evangelizing. That's showing the love of Jesus. But we just keep thinking about religious liberty, religious liberty, religious liberty, and. But even going back to the founding notion of this country, liberty, the handmaiden of liberty is responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the problems I think, and I think you and I both have experienced this, is it's very difficult in this sort of environment to say, here are some challenges to religious liberty, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, here are ways that we're not standing on the edge of the apocalypse right. necessarily. It's much easier to go forward and say your religious liberty is imperiled. You're about so when I would talk about the stewardship of protecting religious liberty, um, I would always go in and say, here's what I'm talking about and here's what I'm not talking about. Mm-hmm. Because if I just left it there, I would have people coming up and assuming we're about to be uh, put into camps and there's you know all sorts of uh, things that not only isn't true, yeah. but it ends up with a lack of gratitude to God for the, the, the freedoms we do have and a diminishing of say our brothers and sisters in China yeah. and Cuba and other places. Well, the main way in which people learn about religious liberty, especially Christians in this country, is through a fundraising slash threat matrix. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you're not learn you're learning through religious li- about religious liberty through lawsuits, through litigation, through people flooding your emails saying where uh, religious liberty is under attack, under attack, under attack. And they're not making up these, right. you know, these cases. They're not making them up. They're occurring. But the way I've put it is the citadel of religious liberty is very strong and the cannon fire against it is real. But yeah. the walls are still very strong. I, you know, I'll just give you an example. In the last 10 years, there has been an unbroken record of success in cases on the merits of the Supreme Court for religious liberty. Unbroken record. And most of them, it's not been 5-4. You know, it's not been yeah. the close. It's been 9-0. It's been 7-2, most of them. And so right now, honestly, truthfully, people of all religions in the United States of America exercise and enjoy more religious liberty protections in a concrete way than they have since the founding of this country. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't filing lawsuits or states aren't taking action that you have to defend against, you absolutely do. But we can't look at the cannon fire only and, right. re- and, and forget the fact that we have very strong walls to resist it. Yeah, and as Christians, I mean, we ought to be the people who understand that better than anyone. I mean, right. it's Augustine's city of God. Right. You have uh, collapse and uh, awakening happen all, happening all at the same time, and it's just very difficult for people to see that. Now, it's, it, it, if David Frenchism mm-hmm. in the caricature is a refusal to fight, then that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because one of the things you do that I will often say to you, why are you doing this, <laughs> is you will do these debates... <laughs> With, with people uh, who are are very critical and I would ra- I would not do that without a court order <laughs> just because who wants to give up a night to do that why do you do that or why did you do that are you going to yeah keep I've doing done it? it a number of times and I'll do it again um a couple of reasons one the f- the first big debate I did was over David Frenchism yeah. so I figured like I need to sally forth to defend myself um and that was at Catholic University against Sora Bomari. And uh, that got intense. Yeah, that got intense. I remember. Um, yeah. And then right after that, I was invited to debate Eric Metaxas twice. Yeah. Uh, once at Q Conference and then once at John Brown University. And I just said, sure. Um, let me say I did not expect those debates to be as intense yeah. as they got. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is those, the first one at the Q Conference, I was very, you know, I was... I was pretty calm. I was very calm throughout the whole thing. And then, because I don't I don't like to get angry in these things. The second one, so this was September of 2020, and I was getting increasingly alarmed at the idea that Christians were going to once again carry Donald Trump over the finish line. I was very, I was pretty animated. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting off the stage and called my wife. I said, ah, I feel like I just went too far. And then after January 6th, I thought, I did not go far, far enough. enough. Yeah. 
And then the last one was I debated Chris Rufo uh, on Barry Weiss's podcast. Barry Weiss is a friend. I've known her for a long time. Defended actually her free speech at Columbia back mm-hmm. when she was a Columbia student in the early 2000s. And we debated the CRT, the anti-CRT legislation, which I think has a lot of free speech problems attached to it. So yeah, I'll do it on occasion. I get a you know I get pinged every now and then with why don't you debate me or why yeah, don't yeah yeah you know if it's strategic and it's a valuable if and and there and I can reach an audience that might have an open mind, I'll do it. Uh, but I'm just not sitting or you know looking like I'm not like a prize fighter looking for the next you know match. And, yeah. Unless it was page pay per view and I got some cut, then maybe yeah 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 that's right <laughs> that's right. You you and I went through a similar process of looking around in 2015, 2016, Mm -hmm. 2017, and saying, what is happening to evangelicalism? Mm -hmm. Some of that was not a surprise. I mean, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, like him, hate him, whatever, in between, it's kind of consistently Jerry Falwell Jr. And has been for years. Eric Metaxas, on the other hand, uh, is that was a surprise to me. Yes. Because um, I would... uh, I would more. I would love sitting down and having dinner with Eric Metaxas because for years and years and years, watching him do Socrates in the City, mm-hmm. watching he's he's brilliant, he's funny as can be, mm-hmm. uh, and he had a an intellectual credibility that mm-hmm. often was lacking in sort yeah. of populist uh, evangelicalism, and so it's 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 surprising to me now not. Not the support of a candidate or, or not, but children's books uh, about Donald Trump and uh, caveman Par- Donald drains the yeah, swamp, yeah, yeah, and and so forth. And so maybe I just don't, I just don't understand what the trajectory is. But we see it a lot. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I mean, are are you, are you and I just crazy? <laughs> That well, there's always be. that possibility. That's possibility is there. So I think with Eric and, you know, after debating him twice and talking to him in the green rooms and everything, I think there was a couple of things going on that were actually going on at a lot of Christians that the, the media just doesn't get. One is they got, which was the catastrophism. The America's over. America, yeah. You know, this is an emergency. America's going to end. I mean, I remember at the John Brown uh, event, Eric said something to the effect that if Joe Biden wins, we, we won't be able to hold these events, you know, like that, that what, you know, the FBI was going to shut down a debate at a Christian college. I mean, it, it didn't make any sense to me, but it was really this sense of existential threat combined with, and this is the thing that the media misses, prophecy. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is something that I've written a lot about, and that's something that because um, the mainstream media has trouble covering evangelicalism in general. Right. It has real trouble covering uh, charismatic Pentecostal yes, Christianity. Yes. Just doesn't get it. Isn't isn't in contact with it. Or it, when they are, uh, they assume that that's representative of all of the rest of it. So you right. have a Kenneth Copeland to right. a clip, and this is what, and this is the whole thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. But there was a subset of people within uh, the the charismatic community who had prophesied pretty defiantly and pretty clearly about Donald Trump, not just as he was, um, you know, uh, all, you know, all rulers are under the sovereignty of God, not just that in the sense that, you know, appointed by God, but in the sense of he had a special, specific nation-saving divine appointment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a way, like the King David analogy was even stronger than, uh, well, here we have somebody who d- who's done bad things but can do good things. It was also the anointed, the anointing. And so there was this powerful strain of prophecy um, throughout uh, parts of American Christianity that said America's in an ending uh, or in irreversible decline, and only this man appointed by God can stop it. And that's a difficult thing to argue against. Yeah, sure. Because you're arguing against a prophecy. How, How do you argue against that prophecy? And so I realized you know, part of the way through some of those debates, that's what I was really debating. It wasn't a set of policy propositions. It wasn't the 1998 Southern Baptist Convention statement on the importance of character in politicians. Right. I've probably quoted that more than 99.9% of Baptists. And yeah. it and, was- and then, the, and then they, uh, they reaffirmed it word for word <laughs> in 2018. Right. Uh, yeah. Amazing. And 
And so I wasn't actually debating that. What I was debating was were two things that were tough to debate. One, which is this firm conviction that a future event, a potential future event, election of Joe Biden, could end the country. Uh, how do you disprove that, right? It's, right? And then the other thing that I was debating was a, a prophecy level conviction that this person, Donald Trump, was appointed by God. Now, that's not the entire reason why evangelicals supported Trump, but there were a lot of evangelicals, particularly who were influenced by charismatic Pentecostal theology, who were in that camp. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that has happened is, uh, and it's not just in one community where there are these broken friendships yeah. of uh, people who uh, David Frum uh, wrote about it in terms of revealed preference, yeah. where you, you say, well, wait a minute, how can you be doing this? Yeah. We believe X. Uh, and then people are saying, yes, but we've always really believed Y. I thought that was the more important <laughs> yeah. thing. And you're starting to say, well, you know, how, how did we not know that we were this out of step? And why are we in a moment where we can't be out of step mm. without a total breaking yeah. of all relationships. I, I even knew someone who there was almost a wedding uh, potentially that could have been called off because uh, there, there were people saying, we don't want to be unequally yoked. And what they were talking about was not belief in Christ. It right. was that they had different views on January 6th and, and so forth. Yikes. Yeah, and I mean, you you had a good term for this factional friendships. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. and I mean, here's here's my here's what I wonder often, and I, I find myself asking this almost every day. I mentioned this in the uh, event with Beth. Is this just life, and we're just sort of seeing it? Mm -hmm. uh, has it always been this way? And so that when you look back, I mean, you can look back and see um, evangelical leaders talking about how the 1970s are the definitive moment or the 1980s or what have you. Is this really a unique moment in mm -hmm. this way or are we just sort of seeing what life has always been? So I think it's a unique moment that is exposing the reality of life in a particularly clear way. Okay, mm. so I think mm. that if you look at 2020 and 2021, Mich Michelle Goldberg, who, who writes the New York Times, put it very well in, like, in late 2020. She said, in one year, we've been through 1974, an impeachment. Yeah. We've been through 1968, riots. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been through 1929, a stock market crash. We've been through 1918, a pandemic. Yeah. Then you roll into 2021, um, you went through 1975, a fall of Saigon. You went into another 1974, another impeachment. And then with January 6th, you came closer than we've ever come since 1861 to an 1861. And so all of that has happened at once. And what's happened is it has put immense pressure on all of us to greater yeah. or lesser degrees. And, and one of the things that I've come to believe in life is we don't really know who we are until we're tested. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's sort of comprehensive. You know, I, uh, you don't know if you're physically brave until you have to show some courage. You don't know if you're truthful unless telling the truth will, you can tell the truth when it hurts you. You don't even know if, you know, you don't know if you're faithful until maybe you've been tempted. Maybe you're sort of like, I, I was around a guy the other day. He said, yeah, I was, I was pure before marriage, but it was a completely inadvertent purity. <laughs> and um, an unintentional purity before marriage. Yes. But there is a, we don't know who we are until we're tested. And often we don't know why we even have a relationship until it's tested. And, and I think that one of the things that a lot of people found was that I, we thought our common unity was in Christ, it turned out it was in politics. Mm, yeah. And then when that common unity in politics fractured, everything else fall, fell apart. And that's a story for an awful lot of people in this country. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't endorse candidates. Right. I you know, in, interact with whoever is, um, is in authority at the moment, but I don't endorse candidates. One of the reasons why I was so alarmed in 2016 is because I didn't think that the lesser of two evils argument would hold. Right. And I wish I had been wrong about that. 
So I was, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with secular media defending my fellow evangelicals who saw Trump differently than I did Mm -hmm. to say uh, most of them uh, aren't saying this is what we want in total. They're saying this is better than that. But the problem is I've seen it happen so many times. And it doesn't just happen on the right. It happens on the left in a lot of ways too, is once this is our guy and in office. So for instance... Um, I've seen the same people who had bumper stickers support the president, bomb Iraq, you know, all of that back uh, in the 2002, 2003, 2004 era and were really interventionist uh, sort of people who now are saying in these ridiculous forever wars that, that not because they say, as we all do with something, you know, I've considered this yeah. and I think that this is not right or that was my view then. This, it's as though it never happened. Yeah. But this is, we, we've got different teams and they're asking different things now. Well, and you and I both know if, if Chris Christie hadn't demolished Marco Rubio and the Rubio rise yeah. continued, a lot of these exact same people would be saying, oh, well, you know, Reaganism and the optimism and the outlook, you know, that outlook is, that's, who we are, that's who yeah. we are. They, there's some you know, real interesting polling data that basically says uh, we are deeply influenced by who runs the party, of our, our, who, who's, the, who's the head of the party, who's the president, if, you are, if you're on that side. And so you can take a, an array of issues mm-hmm. and your answer to whether or not you agree with them is gonna depend almost entirely on who's advocating for them. Yeah. And so that's what some people have even done this project of saying, do you agree with Barack Obama that do you agree with Donald Trump that and they put the exact same statement and Mm -hmm. get completely opposite answers. Completely. Yeah. And that's the tribalism at work. I mean, I had always been somebody who I was I was a civil libertarian. In other words, I, I protected the rights of everybody, regardless left, right. But when it came to politics, I was a pretty partisan Republican. I was a 2012 GOP delegate for Mitt Romney. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't get much more partisan than that. But then I left the GOP um, in 2016. And I have to say that I don't ever intend to go back and join a party. Um, I, I really feel like- No matter what party. No matter what yeah. party. I really feel like that has been one of the better decisions that I've made is to shed that partisanship. That doesn't mean I don't vote for somebody on a party or, right. you know- but to just shed that partisan identity, I feel like it's put me in a better position. Uh, it's a more healthy position, I think, in many ways for a citizen because it takes you out of the role of being a lawyer, which is my side. I'm going to amplify how good we are. I'm going to minimize how bad we are. I'm going to amplify how bad they are and minimize how good they are. And it kind of puts you in the role of a juror. Yeah, yeah. And and so then you're kind of, you're you're deciding between competing arguments and. It, I think it's a much better place. It's a much it's a much better place. And I think also Christians should really think hard about how much they want to have that partisan identity. Yeah. Well, pastors, uh, I'm having this conversation, as you know, every day. Yes. With pastors, and what's interesting to me are pastors who uh, previously were not the people who were going to get up and endorse candidates yeah. and nor were they the kind of people who were going to get up and say prophetically care for the stranger and whatever. Mm-hmm. They thought, I'm just going to preach the gospel and I'm going to avoid all of these yeah. things, not because they were cowards, but because right. they were saying, I want to be able to reach everybody in my community. Yeah. I don't want to be distracted with these other things, but it doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. because uh, if you just get up and uh, one pastor said, he simply prayed for the family of George Floyd and suddenly he was yeah, accused of, of being a critical race theorist. Yeah, it's amazing. And someone else who prayed for First um, Timothy two prayed for President Biden, and someone was outraged because uh, he he wasn't affirming that the election was stolen. This isn't president, and uh, so there's no way to to get around it. And with social media, it's heightening it. Yeah, I mean, half the time I will say to people. There's a limit here. There's an end point mm-hmm. because nobody can keep going this way. Yeah. No society without exhaustion. And then half the time I say, maybe this is just going to keep getting worse. Well, history has proven you can go this way into the point of mass bloodshed. I mean, yeah. history has proven that. 
Now, that doesn't mean that that's inevitable. That doesn't even mean it's probable. But it definitely means it's possible. I mean, if you had told me a year ago, and in a year ago, I'm uh, pretty cynical about the yeah. state of American politics. One year ago this week, I released a book saying "Divided," they, uh, you know, called uh, you know "Divided We Fall," where I posited that America could break up. But in September of 2020, if you told me in January of 2021, a mob of thousands of people, many of them praying Christians, listening to Christian praise music. <laughs> would storm the United States Capitol to try to overturn the lawful results of election driven by the wildest, dumbest conspiracy theories you've ever heard, I would have said, that's nuts. Yeah, and, and not only that, but if either of us had had said in 2016, this is where this could go. Right. The other would have said, you need a vacation. That's, that's, <laughs> let's not be scaremongering with ridiculous yeah. sorts of scenarios that wouldn't happen. Oh, you know, one of the things that is very humbling for a person in, in uh, my line of work is to go back and read some of the things that you wrote. And I remember in 2017 writing something that was essentially saying, look, I didn't want Trump to win. But I mean, let's be real. There's a lot of checks and balances here. Yeah. And, yeah. and for most of the, tw- the four years, that was right. That was spot on. There were a lot of checks and balances that blocked his worst impulses, but they blocked his worst impulses until they didn't. And, and yeah, and the thing that I think that was so discouraging wasn't that Donald Trump was Donald Trump. It was that Everybody else. And what was it that you, at your conversation with Beth? She said, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that Trump was Trump. I'm surprised that, uh, I was surprised that we were us. Yes. Yeah. And, and this goes back to your lesser evil point. Nobody likes to be on team lesser evil. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So they're going to convince themselves that it's good. Yeah. That the lesser evil is actually good. And then once you've crossed that threshold of calling what is evil good calling what is bad, uh, what is wrong, right, then there aren't many limits left for you yeah. at that point. And, and that's where, you know, we came, <laughs> you know, I had friends from college who, look, he was my 16th choice out of 16. Yes, I heard that a lot. And yeah. going to being like the third bass boat in the boat parade. I mean, that was the kind of, that was the, proje- the, the, the progression that people made. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Yeah, as someone said to me, he was my 16th choice out of 17 because who's going to vote for George Pataki? That was his, <laughs> that was his, uh, that was his line. Now, you in a newsletter uh, several weeks ago uh, talked about the empathy debate oh, gosh, yeah. uh, within evangelicalism. And I have to admit, when this first started to emerge, knowing that it was kind of derivative coming out of Doug Wilson mm-hmm. in Idaho, I thought, well, you know, Doug Wilson has always been sort of contrarian. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he would write some things that were uh, really good and helpful, but then there would be thrown into the middle of it advocacy for for marijuana legalization and something where this actually would have been good to hand to somebody, but I can't can't do it. Right. Uh, So I thought maybe this is just sort of the uh, slate pitch uh, sort of reality coming from there. but do you think that you think this is actually the case that that widespread there is a sense that empathy itself is a 
is a vice. Well, so my, my point was that empathy has become, it's not that we have, uh, the problem is we have too much of it. And in some ways it's not even that it's too little, it's too selective. Yeah. Okay. And so how is it that people rationalize being extremely empathetic to one side and not to another? Well, then one of the ways is you're going to attack the notion of empathy itself. And so, you know, what you, so that the analogy that was used in this conversation with Doug Wilson was, well, okay, if there's quicksand and a person is drowning in quicksand, you don't jump into the quicksand with them. You have one foot on the solid ground, you have a hand on a strong branch and you reach in and you pull them out. And in this exchange, you know, that that's sympathy, which is better than empathy, which is being in the quicksand. But the reality is the way we see a lot of this play out is when you're somebody I disagree with, I want to maintain the ability to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, but if it's somebody I agree with, well, it's not empathy, it's just agreement. And so what you begin to notice was how selective a lot of this stuff was. And then also some of the people who are allegedly having their feet on solid ground to reach into the quicksand actually had their other foot in a deeper pile of quicksand. Right. And so, right. you know, the perfect, you know, an example of the, the problem that I was talking about is um, Job's friends. Mm-hmm. And I should have put this in the piece and I intended to put it in the piece and I forgot. And then like the first commenter said, oh, you're, you're condemning Job's friends. Yeah. They were the people who went and sat with Job when Job was suffering but then decided that we also need to pontificate to you, Job. And they were exactly wrong. And this is what's happening around issues of race and abuse all around in the church is people who don't really know a lot about this stuff. And, you know, maybe they're just now learning, but they really, they don't want to be on the wrong side of sort of these waves of political correctness that sweep through right-wing evangelicalism. And so, they, they are going to be on the quote-unquote solid ground, which is actually often not that solid right, at all. Right, and And it also, I think if there's not the right kind of empathy, mm-hmm. and obviously that doesn't mean uh, simply just feeling what someone feels, right. but the right kind of empathy, you're not even going to understand people intellectually, not Correct. just emotionally. So I find myself often um, preparing people, for instance, to deal with atheists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to say, think about what it would be like if you had lived through this in a church or if all you had ever seen was was this when it came to to Christians. Well, that that uh, or to say, think about if you're a biology uh, student Mm -hmm. and what you think Christianity means is that you have to walk away from the, the very thing that you uh, that you not only love, but that you see, you'd be willing to walk away from father and mother, but you think Christianity is saying to you, biology is now uh, <laughs> is now off the table. Right. If, if Jesus says, leave biology, great. But yeah. if he doesn't, uh, and we say leave biology, then that becomes a problem. Say, think about that person and the sorts of questions there. I find if you, if you don't have that, you're not even able to have a, a conversation to get to persuasion. Absolutely. You have, to, you have to try your best to be able to see through someone else's eyes. And I, you know, one of the things I quoted in that newsletter was your discussion with Beth where you said, look, if I'm going to have a really difficult conversation about somebody with ideas that I profoundly disagree with, I might role play that conversation, but I'm taking their position in the conversation. That's a concrete way to help someone see through somebody else's eyes. But you you made a point there about atheists or people who are, so, you know, maybe ex-evangelicals yeah. or, and a lot of people get really angry at those folks. Right. But what have they seen? What exactly. have they experienced? And a lot of what they've experienced is people living as if the faith isn't real. Correct. It's like, imagine if someone says, I totally believe in aeronautics, okay? Do you want to fly to Washington? You couldn't pay me enough to get on that right. thing. What is that thing? You know. Right. And so people are saying, we totally believe A and B and C and D about the sovereignty of God, the power of God, that Christians should be fearless in the approach to adversity, the you know, on and on and on, and then reacting completely differently as if God doesn't have the United States of America, Donald Trump does, as if, um, you know, the only way to motivate fellow believers is through abject appeals to fear. I mean, 
So that's saying, okay, on the one hand, I believe X and I live Y. And if you do it enough, a person's going to fairly say, you don't even, you don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I find myself having this conversation with a lot of secular media folks mm-hmm. who don't know evangelicals to come in and, and have them role play uh, being an evangelical. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is, and I would just sort of go through and to say, look, this is what they're, this is what they have experienced. Right. Uh, this is one of the reasons why they're fearful in this mm-hmm. way. Maybe they shouldn't be. Right. But this is this is how it makes sense to them in their minds. They're not stupid. They're not, uh, you know, and I think sometimes, uh, sometimes people on the outside think, well, these people are all sort of opioid addicted, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, having rooster fights in the backyard <laughs> and so forth. And they say, no, there's, no. There, there's, a, there's a, a logic, uh, and not just a logic, but there's a deeper sort of emotional uh, and and spiritual uh, calculus going on here, and if you don't know that, you're you're not even going to understand these people in order to speak to them. Yeah, you know, I put it this way because I'm always being asked by folks in D.C. or New York or L.A. or wherever yeah. what what's going on, and what I just I've developed a very short way of saying it. If you lived where they lived and your news consumption was their news consumption, you'd have the red hat on as well yeah. in all likelihood. Yeah. You know, there's this old statement called Miles' Law. It's a statement of sort of bureaucratic reality, but I think it applies to us all, which is where you stand is often based on where you sit. And so what is the environment you're a part of? Who, right. What's your community? What's your news intake? All of these things are things that are hitting at a, at a very deep level. And we're often thinking, oh, I'm arriving completely rationally as a complete independent thinker at all of my conclusions. When the reality is a lot of forces from our family to our geography to our community, it's like you're in the Mississippi River. And yeah, in theory, you can kind of paddle over to the bank and watch it go by or maybe even for a little while swim against it. But most of us are in a Mississippi River of momentum about our worldview and our outlook. And it's, you know, so it's one thing to sort of say, ha, you guys, you rubes, and then Ask yeah. them how how intellectually and religiously diverse is your newsroom? Right, right, yeah. Well, one way I've seen, uh, and I, I just thought about this today. This is years ago. We were in a meeting on um, religious liberty. I remember there was a Muslim uh, person there, and you said he was talking about sort of the anti-Muslim backlash that was right. taking places, and you said you've got to understand that in some communities, the only people who have ever encountered Muslims are people with um, a military son or daughter in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. And that's the only picture that they have. So imagine if you're yep. in that situation, that's exactly right, I yep. think. And yep. I think he was actually able to step back and say, oh, uh, yeah. the, I, I, can, I can see that now and probably helped him to be able to talk to those people uh, going forward. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, so much of it is this, what is the experience that you have? And Jonathan Haidt has put it incredibly yeah. well. He talks about the difference between the elephant and the rider. Yeah. And, and the rider is our rational mind and the elephant is everything else. And we sit there and we aim all of our arguments at the rider, but if the elephant doesn't wanna move, that elephant isn't moving. And if the elephant wants to move, the rider's coming along. And it's funny, it actually reminded me of the way I approached a jury in a trial mm-hmm. back when my trial lawyer days. My thought was this, step one, get the jury to want to rule for my client. Step two, explain the reasons why their desires are correct. <laughs> and so you get, you connect with the heart, you connect with that, that heart and soul connection. And the mind often just tends to follow right along with that. And and that's one thing when I talk about conspiracy theories to folks who are so frustrated, I said, look, you're not just talking about a set of ideas that you can send a fact check about. That's correct. You're talking about people's friendships, yes. their sense of community, their sense of purpose. And then you can't fact check them out of that because you're, what you're essentially saying to them is replace this something that gives you purpose, gives you friendships, gives you community with what? Replace it with what? Isolation, anger, um, emptiness. So you have to replace something with something. And and so people will email me all the time. I'm really worried about my aunt. 
yeah. or my uncle. Yeah, I get that too. And yeah. one of the first things I respond with is, how much time are you spending with them? Because as great as our dispatch fact checks are, they're not enough by themselves. You right. have to open the heart first. Right. Well, we talked about January 6th. Just take the Trump phenomenon off the table. Uh-huh. A lot of people are worried that January 6th is a trial run. Right. Whether from the left or the right, yeah. in terms of a, a violent sort of uh, moving away from American democracy to settling things with, with mob violence. Is that scaremongering or might we be there? It isn't scaremongering for this reason. So far, there was, there appears to be an insufficient rejection of January 6th by the body politic to deter its future occurrence. So... Yeah. What I mean by that is that, yeah, a lot of Republicans are, most Republicans, the vast majority of Republicans do not endorse what happened on January 6th. Right. But they're ready to move on. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. If you want to talk about it, if you want to think about it, well, you're obsessed. You're obsessed. Move on. Move on. So what ends up happening is outside of these cases that are, these court cases that are happening around the country, there isn't a real sense of remorse of repentance, of consequence. Donald Trump is still, it's hard to take him all out of this, he's still the overwhelming front runner. A good way to be sort of on the outs within the House GOP is to want to investigate January 6th and find out what happened. Just ask Liz Cheney, for example. So if you have a whole political movement that unlike in the Nixon era, in Nixon in 1974, GOP leaders went to Nixon and said, it's time, Yeah, it's time. So that gave essentially permission to the great big mass of GOP voters to say, no more of that, no more. And so the next one they elected was Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. you know, in so many ways, so profoundly different from Richard Nixon. But here there isn't that structure. And so that there isn't that sense of we can never do that again. The sense is let's not talk about that again. And, and I don't think there's been enough accountability to act as a deterrent. And so that makes me worried because the rhetoric just keeps escalating and escalating. You know, one of the things, I talked about the whole lesser of two evils thing before, at talking about just voters and people. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things I noticed during the Trump era that I'm sort of seeing repeated in a different way are a lot of elected officials and government uh, folks who would say, oh, this, I, I hate that this tweet is there. I hate that this happened or whatever. I'm so embarrassed. I don't know what to do. Right now, I'm hearing that from Democrats who are saying, "Ah, why is President Biden so incompetent on fill in the blank, Afghanistan, the border, uh, what have you? And I said to, to some of them, you know, even as something as relatively minor as reaching out to religious communities, Mm -hmm. Barack Obama was really good at that. Yeah. Uh, They would, even when it was something they knew that I was going to completely hate, they would call and say, we're going to do this that you're going to hate, Mm -hmm. and here's why we're doing it. Yeah. Um, Biden does not do that. Biden administration does not do that, even though it's uh, largely the same people. Yeah. Somebody had a theory. I can't even remember who told me this. And said the theory they had is it's because Obama didn't feel himself to be really connected with religious people. And so Mm -hmm. he had to shore that up. Yeah. Biden, lifelong Catholic, he feels like I already know this stuff. But actually, I I was in the Oval Office one time when we were dealing with, I don't know, I think it was immigration issues. Mm -hmm. And Biden said, how many evangelicals are there? 30 million? If you get all 30 million to call their members of Congress, then this will, and Obama's (laughs) the one that said, Joe, if he could get 30 million people to call their members of Congress, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> right. Yeah, you actually are seeing this a little a little more clearly. Yeah. Why? I mean, every president I know looks incompetent at some point yeah. and then comes back. Is that what's happening or is it is it worse than that? Well, you know, we just, that you raise a really good question. You raise a question I'm asking myself because um, – Right now, I'm beginning to get that, I'm getting that whiff, that aroma of Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was well-meaning man, mm-hmm. you know, ran to turn the page against corruption and a, yeah. a really harsh and terrible time in American history. 
um, a lot of sort of initial hope that he could heal divisions, and then he wasn't up to the job. That was one of the you know one of the things that became so clear about Carter. And he was living in a different time. He was facing the Soviet Union that seemed at the time to be at the peak of its powers. We seemed to be the power in decline. There was a lot going on. Hostage crisis, Iranian revolution, gas lines. Uh, Sounds kind of like how rough things have been. And he wasn't up to it. He wasn't up for the job. And now America was very fortunate in that the GOP had already turned the page. And so it was looking elsewhere. But where it feels like for where you are right now is imagine it's 1970, late 1977, and Carter is Carter, but the GOP is going more Nixon. Yeah. And and yeah. that's what is is distressing to me. But yeah, the, the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, really shook me yeah. um, in, in both that it happened. And because, that they didn't see how bad it was. I mean, it, it wasn't right. a... Uh, this was a, a failure and we're going to correct it. It was, yeah, it was going to happen eventually. It happened yep. quicker than we thought. Yeah, it's quicker than we thought. And hey, here, look at the bright side. We were able to do an emergency airlift pretty well. Well, yeah, I mean, the American military can move a heck of a lot of people from point A to point B when it mobilizes its resources. But we took more casualties in the evacuation than we had taken in years, Yeah, in years. And it was like the third or fourth worst single day of casualties in the entire Afghan war. Um, the total call, and then, you know, and then we have to focus on the human rights catastrophe that's unfolding. And, you know, look, I wrote a whole thing about this, about how the United States and the world, ever since um, the Holocaust has said, never again, nope, right. nope. And then mass atrocities keep happening. And we go, nah, well, we've learned our lesson. and. We're not going to let it happen. And, and in 2005, world powers agreed on a principle called a duty to protect, that countries have a duty to protect their own citizens against mass atrocities. But if a country cannot protect its citizens against mass atrocities, then the international community needs to. And that has just been thrown out the wind, just thrown away. And then Americans can't say, well, you know, I, I mean, I hate it for these Afghan women and girls. I hate it, you know but not our problem anymore. Yeah. We spent 20 years telling and teaching them to that they could rely on us. Right, right. And then to yank the rug out from under them like that, it just it didn't just feel like a grievous strategic wrong for interests of our nation. It just felt like a grievous moral wrong. Yeah, I, I was talking the other day to someone who ha, has fled Afghanistan, mm-hmm. lived under Taliban rule, then lived over the last 20 years, then Taliban again and got out. And someone uh, asked, what's the, what's the big immediately noticeable difference between Taliban rule and not? And he said, music. Mm. He said, when the Taliban, com- the Taliban comes in, music is gone yeah. of any kind. Yeah. And he said, it's a chilling reality to see because that's a, a metaphor for everything else. Yeah. Well, they just announced they're bringing back amputation punishments. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, and and the other thing is we won't actually really know the full extent of the atrocities because who's safe reporting from there? Right. So it's going to kind of disappear into this, the darkness of ignorance, and they're going to be able to operate with impunity in these communities that, you know, look, I mean, I know, I know we had problems in our military effort. That is not to say that we had conducted the war effectively at all times that we had accomplished all that we had set out to accomplish, we hadn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you just look at the raw reality of the difference in life where American and American American forces and American allies controlled versus the Taliban, it is night and day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've kept you longer than I told you I would. <laughs> this isn't a lock-in. I promise I'm gonna let you go, but two more questions. Okay. Is Rogan? Mm. And, and if so, will that bring the culture war temperature down or heighten it up? Okay, so- I've got my thoughts, but I'm curious what yeah. you think. Yeah, okay, let's, so my initial thought was that when the Supreme Court accepted Dobbs, the, mm-hmm. the, case, the Mississippi case, it was not going to strike down the Roe regime, that it was gonna modify the Casey regime mm-hmm. to be more, permit greater state regulation. I am increasingly of the opinion it's going to, I'm not quite to probability, but I'm now at 
45, 48, 49% chance they go ahead and get rid of Roe and Casey. Um, and, and the reason is really kind of simple. One is, what is the constitutionally valid rule and constitutionally logical rule that is not Casey, but also not overturning Roe? It, then you're just still making stuff up. Right. And, and the fact of the matter is Roe is just made up. The Constitution, the text, the history of the Constitution in no way expressly or impliedly create a right to an abortion. They just don't. It's not there. When Roe was decided, there were legal scholars who were quite liberal and supportive of abortion rights who said, this what? What is this? Yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1992 delivered a speech at the NY, at New York University Law School where she said if Roe was less less quote breathtaking in scope we wouldn't have the kind of judicial wars that we have now she was right so Roe just has no basis in the text of the constitution the history um it's not there explicitly. It's not there implicitly. And so if the Supreme Court's going to draw another rule, it's just going to have to make up another one. Yeah. And that's contrary to the philosophy of the majority of the justices. So I'm still not all the way there yet where I'm totally persuaded they're going to do it. But literally every passing day, I think it's more likely that they're would that they going to overturn Roe. And if they do, uh, you have maybe 40 states mm -hmm. that either severely restrict or or outlaw abortion and uh, I mean not 40 states I'm sorry <laughs> uh, my, my I haven't had enough caffeine or candy corn <laughs> today you have maybe 20 25 right. states that do that um, does that raise the temperature in the culture wars or or does that mean that it sort of moves on to other uh, questions so my theory is this it temporarily increases the temperature and over the long term decreases the temperature. Mm -hmm. Okay, so no question overturning Roe would be a political shock. Yeah. No question. So anyone who says, okay, well, if we overturn Roe, that's going to de-escalate immediately. No, 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 no. no. That's going to be, you're going to have mass protests. You're going to have a huge, there's going to be pressure to pack the court. There's going to be all kinds of anger and fury. However... What then happens, and this is this is not this is not all great for the pro-life movement. Okay, um, most studies that have looked at what happens to the number of abortions in the U.S. if Roe is overturned is that about ninety percent of them will still happen. Mm. So because that's that's because the big states that are pro-abortion are still going to abortion is untouched. Yeah, the smaller states that have passed heartbeat bills already have very low abortion rates. They have low populations, so the big, big chunk of it all will kind of stay the same. And then the pro-life movement has to go state house by state house, which de-escalates it nationally and brings it more locally. So that the, I think that over time that has a chance to, the abortion part of the culture war has a chance to cool off after that giant spasm of anger. But, but we've proven that we can fight about a bunch of other stuff. And I was talking to somebody really, really smart the other day and he, who was a close observer of, of coalitional Republican politics. And he says, there has never been the intensity around the life issue that you see at the grassroots around the anti-CRT issue. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I think the abortion issue um, has a chance to cool off, but that doesn't mean the overall culture war will cool off. And I'm afraid that a lot of our fellow pro-life evangelicals, if Roe is gone, are going to assume that this means, you know, our friend Robbie George has an amicus brief saying the 14th Amendment protects unborn children, asking right. the court to do that. Not likely the court will do that. No, it's not gonna do uh, that. But I think most people assume that's what getting, Roe, getting yes. rid of Roe is, and then we'll step back and say, well, what is this then? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's not, it's not a fair characterization. This is a, this is a big win uh, for the pro-life movement. Very big. But if people think this means you go from an abortion regi regime to no abortion, then they're going to be really uh, yeah. disillusioned. Well, that's why I always say when we, I bring this up, look, that would, overturning Roe isn't the beginning of the end of abortion in the U.S. It's, 
the end of the beginning of the fight against abortion in the U.S. Because essentially what overturning Roe does is it makes it possible to take the, the battle to the next step, which is greater restriction and ultimately, hopefully, prohibition. Um, but the other thing to think about here is pro, the, the goal of the pro-life movement is not, and it should not be banning abortion, it should be ending abortion. And a lot of people think those are the same thing. Now, I think just laws do prohibit abortion. A just legal system prohibits abortion. But unless you have a major culture change. Yes. And I, I try to make this point too, that because sometimes people who say, uh, well, it's it's ending abortion, not banning abortion. What they mean is, let's not ban abortion. Right. Let's continue. Let's just work on hearts and minds. And I, I think that's ridiculous. I think we have to say, uh, we have to have the law. Mm-hmm. And what Mike Gerson used to say yeah. and, and George W. Bush used to say, uh, uh, protected in law and welcomed in life. Yes, exactly. It's the floor, but it's not the ceiling. Yes. And if we think that if you pass a law, you end abortion, that's because the, the interesting reality is that the abortion rate in the U.S. was higher in 1973 when abortion was largely prohibited than it is right now yeah. by a pretty fair bit. And so I think that's why I put it this way in an essay. I said, number one, a just society protects unborn life in mm-hmm. law. Yeah. But de- passing a law to protect unborn life does not have the effect necessarily of ending abortion. And we know that from history, that especially when you have a, especially when you have a procedure that is very easy to accomplish clandestinely. Right. That and in nineteen 19- and chemically and uh, chemically, no, yeah. yeah. So we have to have. I like that. You know, prohib- You know, that's uh, um, protected in law, welcomed in life. It's got to be both. Yeah. It has to be both. Now you know I'm a loyal DC Comics fan and always have been, but. <laughs> Uh, you have spent a lot of time defending uh, the DCEU movie franchises yes. as superior to, to the MCU. And as loyal a DC Comics fan as I am, I think that's true in some cases. Shazam, I think, was a, oh, a so great, great yeah. uh, a great movie. But what Zack Snyder did to Superman no, that's, was just egregious. No, that's co- completely false. You, like, th- you think that's false? Man of Steel is an absolutely underrated. Oh, it absolutely is so, underrated. It is such an atrocity no. to the Superman mythos. Yes. No, 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 no. So, Folks, you're watching a factional friendship right here. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is it. Uh, no, so here, here's my short case for MCEU over, I mean, uh, DCEU over MCEU. DC movies take the premise seriously. So what Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan did before that with the Batman trilogy, which is just, you know, that's pantheon level filmmaking, is say, what if this was real? Like, how would we really react? Marvel always has this wink, like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is just, we all know this is a fun night at the movies. Well, Zack Snyder's like, well, no, what if like there is actually a Superman? What would that be like? And it's a thought experiment in the form of a movie, which I find fascinating and interesting. And it hits you at a gut level way that's different. Whereas a lot of the Marvel movies, I feel like I've just had cotton candy. Like it tasted good when I was eating it. And then it's just gone. And I'll walk out of a Marvel movie. Like right now, I cannot tell you who the villain was in Ant-Man and Wasp. Yeah. I think I've seen it twice because I see all superhero movies. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think the DC has just got more gravity to it. Yeah, and I think, I think Cotton Candy's right. But sometimes with, say, the Zack Snyder wing yeah. of uh, these movies, it seems like Cotton Candy over Broccoli uh, <laughs> together. You know, like I, I can have one or the other, but but not but not both. Now, did you see the four-hour Snyder cut? Oh, uh, I hated it. What? I hated it. As someone who loves Justice League, loves Jeff Johns, loves I, I found myself now. Part of it is any movie. I have such a short attention span that I have to watch him. Maria laughs. I have to watch a movie five minutes at a time, and that's true. <laughs> but I just found my eyes glazing over at characters I love, Ugh. but who, yeah. I uh, thought it was a masterpiece. Um, but, but I have a very long attention span. When it, One of my favorite days of my life is when Return of the King came out, the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. I, there was a theater in here in Nashville, larger, greater Nashville area that did extended edition fellowship, 
followed by extended edition tower, two towers, followed by Return of the King, which for those people keeping score at home, I think is 11 and a half hours total. And I did it. And it was a glorious day. Do you know that as somebody who has read Lord of the Rings multiple times since I was, I've never seen one of the movies. Is that, an, is that because you don't want? Yeah. Okay. It's because it's the same. It's people always ask me about these, um, which is, an, of course, an infinitely different proposition. But people will say, what these movies that depict Jesus? And I will say, look, um, I'm not saying for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think the, the second commandment rules yeah. out depictions of Jesus, but right. I'm just saying for me, yeah. It, it tends to embed in my mind and yeah. change my view of things when I see. And so I just, I can't, I can't lose this yeah. or uh, Chronicles of Narnia by, by sort of replacing them with CGI. Uh-huh. So oh, I just say, interesting. Okay. I may break on that eventually, but that's, that's where I am now. I, I used to have, I used to read Lord of the Rings once a year. Yeah. Um, and Silmarillion also, which I actually like better than the Lord of really? the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Really? Uh, you got to wade through like the first 60 pages. Yeah. But then after that, there's so much that's really profound there. But, and then I've started supplementing it with annual viewings of the trilogy from Peter Jackson. It was just like the cherry on top because it was so well done. But I'm, I'm with you generally on the depictions of Jesus. I keep, I keep wanting to connect with the chosen a lot of people tell me that's really, yeah, a really good. Yeah, a lot of good. people love it yeah. uh, and are saying in terms of the acting and everything. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, I, I think you should watch it. I think it's great, yeah. but I just don't trust myself enough yeah. because of the way I, I tend to get that. But I know this is total nerd lock-in <laughs> and has. And the other thing I'm worried about is the Zack Snyder fans uh, coming out on Twitter because they make the Trump people look like, uh, you know, look like, Amateurs. Oh, I know. Uh, and and this time they're on my side. Yes, that's <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, David French, for being here. And how can people find you? Very easy. Go to thedispatch.com, sign up, and you can you'll get if you sign up for free, you'll get my Sunday essays. If you become a paying member, I write Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. Um, or follow me at David A. French. And I've got a fun legal nerd podcast that I do called Advisory Opinions with former DOJ spokesperson, uh, Sarah Isker, who is also a a campaign operative for Carly Fiorina, among others. Super smart, super fun. And so I'm, in other words, I'm easily found in multiple places. And wait, we may start our Lord of the Rings slash DC Comics podcast next. Thanks for being here, David French. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, Pocket Guys, wherever you listen to, uh, to podcasts. And it helps us a lot if you leave a review. It helps other people to find it and send it along to somebody that you think would enjoy uh, this uh, this uh, podcast. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find show notes, including some resources and ways that you can uh, read more from David French. And that means checking out Christianity Today as well. We can tell you with the cover art how you can get more involved. This is Russell Moore and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Core Media. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. Christine Kolb is our administrator. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at Beyond Ordinary Women dot org.